Today's scripture reading is from Hosea 14, 4 through 9. Found out on page 6 in your bulletin. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad to see all of you here. Uh, Great privilege uh, to be with the people of God this morning. Uh, As an introduction, this is going to be a bit unusual, Let's change the outline. Okay, good. Um, Originally, I had wanted to do a topical uh, outline, uh, but the deeper I got into this, I felt like it's better to do uh, an outline that goes with the flow of the passage. So it's more organic in that regard. So you can retitle this or just keep it in your head if you want. But the first point then, which will take verses 4 through 7, is God's chorus of love, God's chorus, or if you want to say canticle of love. Then the second section is just verse 8, God's complaint against idols. And then the last one is just verse 9, God's call to wisdom. So God's uh, love for uh, God's chorus of love, God's complaint against idols, God's call to wisdom. So this course of love is really interesting because it's taken from the poetic language of, of Israel, uh, the poetic romantic language of Israel. It's, uh, we'll get into that, but you might notice first this outline because verse 4 is kind of an introduction to the song uh, of what he's going to do. And then the first line of verse 7 is, is another kind of, this is what there is going to happen. And so those form a little umbrella over the whole thing. This is what's going to happen when I heal them and love them, my anger's turned from them, when they come under my shadow. And there are three courses, three triplets, three verses to this song. And they all end with Lebanon. That's what gives it some structure. So verse five, you see the two line, the three lines ending with take root like the trees of Lebanon. Verse six, three lines, fragrance like Lebanon. Then beginning with the second line of seven, three lines and their fame will be like the vine of Lebanon. So that gives you a little bit of a, a structure of how to, how to look at this thing. The first thing he says is I will heal their apostasy. And this is a very serious word, this word apostasy. It basically means 
faithlessness and treachery. Sometimes we think of apostasy as merely an intellectual choice to believe something instead of another thing or maybe inaccurate uh, doctrine. But this looks at uh, abandoning, for instance, the resurrection of Jesus or abandoning his death in our place as uh, for sinners is to be commit treachery against God. It's to make up your own idea of God. It's to have a new God that you like, that helps you be whatever you want to be, that kind of thing. So the word treacherous is used a lot in Scripture uh, and sometimes translated apostasy. But he says, remarkably, I will heal your treachery. I mean, he knows the treachery. He's not blind to the treachery. And he's going to heal this treacherous heart that his people have. This word heal is used in Psalm 40 in a speaking of spiritual, emotional healing. It says that my bones are troubled. My soul is troubled. Heal me. Or later in Psalm 147, he says that you heal the broken hearted. You bind up their wounds. And in this regard, it's regularly used in league with the word shalom or peace. And sometimes when we're praying for someone to be healed, we use that language, don't we? We say, make them whole again. Make them complete, completely restore their health. And so to be healed is to be brought back whole again, complete. The healing, and and, and it's obvious we have to be healed, (laughs) Israel had to be healed. We have to be healed because we all have by nature treacherous hearts in abandoning God and worshiping anything and everything but God. But his healing process, as it unfolds, as scripture continues to unfold the glory of God, is most poignantly stated in Isaiah 53. Where he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So God actually brings about our healing by wounding this one of whom Isaiah is speaking. One gets hurt. So others get healed. One is crushed and ruined, destroyed. So others are made whole. That's the way God does it. Before the foundations of the world, that was the plan. I will bring about their restoration and healing. And I will go and do it myself. And I will suffer and lose everything in the process. I will bear away their wrath. Isaiah goes on to say uh, another familiar passage. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see that this wounding was his laying our iniquity on this one. That God would come and, and be ruined, hurt. So that our sin could be taken away. 
so that he could indeed turn away his anger, as he says in the third line of verse 4. And Peter so beautifully pulls this section of Isaiah and also from Hosea when he writes, He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed as he quotes basically Isaiah. And so here it's made graphic and clear by bearing our sins in his body on the tree He did this so that we would be delivered from a life of unrighteousness and be given up to a life of righteousness so that our treachery could be healed and we could be made whole with God and give ourselves to righteous living. That is to a life of love and sacrifice. And then he goes on uh, still in keeping with Isaiah for you were straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of yourselves, 1 Peter 2. So Peter is saying, you strayed, you were treacherous. Now you've returned to him. Now you are restored to this God. Only because this God came in the person of his son, in in the person of Christ, and died for your sins. And certainly that informs the next line, I will love them freely. I guess so, right? Yeah, absolutely. You've loved these people freely because you saw their treachery. As it says in Isaiah, I saw their ways, but I will heal them. You don't surprise God by your sin. You don't like God, you know, put his hands on his hands and say, I didn't know it was this bad. No, he saw your treachery. He knows your treachery and mine. He knows the darkness of our hearts. And he looks us straight in the eye and says, I will heal you. And I've wounded myself in order to heal you. What a free love. A love that will joyfully sacrifice for us. And... It turns his anger away. We know this great word propitiation in the New Testament. Oh, don't give me big words, but as we've said before, this is one of those great words you want to know because it means he bears away the wrath of God so that it doesn't land on us. He bears it himself and bears it away from us so that that wrath is absolutely gone. And this is so much... Uh, we mentioned this last week, but I have to say it again in Second Corinthians 5. The same idea of I will heal my anger has turned from them. And this is the basis for return to me because I've turned my anger from you. And the New Testament version is this. I have actually been in the world in Christ reconciling the world to myself. I have suffered. I have lost. I have been wounded. I've shown my eagerness to bring this to you so that you will not bear punishment. Come and return to me. Return to me. So I can say to anyone here, if you haven't trusted Christ, if you are maybe standing off because of your own treacherous heart and you think you don't know how well God does. God does. 
And he knows what you've been. He knows what I have been. And still, he will heal us. Forgive us and change us. And then he gets right into this, uh, the poem or the song, the, the canticle or chorus, whatever you want to say. And this description, it's very important to know that this description is so similar to the Song of Solomon. In fact, you could see these are both songs from the same kind of poetic, romantic core of Israel, Israeli poetry. And words like blossom and uh, fragrance and lily and even the word Lebanon, which is used a lot in Solomon, uh, the Song of Solomon. Uh, the dew, these things are are put into a, a very romantic and even erotic setting as the man and woman are speaking to each other, this couple that loves each other and are, are married. And so God is speaking, and it seems odd because he'll say in verse 5, he shall blossom, he shall take root. But as they say, these are just mixed metaphors describing uh, Israel as a, a man who's turned away from his uh, unfaithfulness and yet also describing Israel as his bride that he's taking to himself, wooing, as it were, saying, I'm going to make you gorgeous. I'm going to make you beautiful uh, in my love for you. And so we come under the shadow of his wings in ver- verse 7. And his, under his shadow, when he heals us, when he loves us freely and turns his anger from us, then we become beautiful. His beauty will be like the olive, verse 6. And this word, uh, Hebrew word, is translated so often in the Psalms as splendor, speaking of God's splendor. And so we are brought near to God and we are embraced and become a part of his splendor. Not his divine splendor, but he imparts a splendor and a glory to us in his salvation. So that true human splendor and glory only come in intimate relationship with God, only in likeness to God who loves faithfully. So this glory, this beauty described in so, such a rich way, which is a, a basic love a chorus for his people. And he's, I remind you, he's speaking to the, these people who were treacherous. So you don't just get in the back door. You don't just come in the backyard. You're brought right in the intimate place with God. And you become his beloved. We'll speak to how Christ is connected to all of this. But I want to talk about this beauty and fruitfulness in a very specific way uh, and apply it to us. Uh, And in particular, I want to talk about the beauty of unity and the beauty of living peacefully with one another. Uh, Because we are caught up in this as a congregation in some ways, but then the whole church is. We, uh, a thread of pastors that I'm on has one title of a thread, pastors quitting. Pastors quitting. 
And I've read of it in many other denominations. And part of it is they've come up against a one group that says, for instance, if you don't have a service with no masks, we're leaving. Or if you do have, if you have a service and don't have mask only, we're leaving, you know. You're like, I don't, not sure what to do here. <laughs> uh, but the, the things, conflict over politics, conflict over race, conflict over medicine. Um, and it's, it's certainly invaded the church uh, in terrible ways. So I think that would be a good place to think of having the beauty of unity, the beauty of living together as one caring for one another. Proverbs talks about the hatred and insolence uh, that stirs up strife or the the anger and the perverseness that stirs up strife. Proverbs says in 23, it's an honor for a person to keep aloof from strife, but every moral fool will be quarreling. And so in the New Testament, no surprise That Jesus, as the centerpiece of what he prays for his church in John 17, it's that they would be united as one. That they would live in love to one another. That they would be one as you and I are one, Father. As you loved me before the foundation of the world, may they experience that love and unity, that devotion to one another that you and I have had from eternity. That's the centerpiece of what he prays. And he prays it repeatedly in that to underscore this is so important. And we can believe, of course, that he is praying that now for his church. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Inside, outside the church. Now, in some Things we take a stand for truth, we will not participate in certain things and will be hated and slandered, and we can't help that. But let it not be because we are prideful and boastful and mean spirited and argumentative and quarreling about things that are not important to the gospel. Romans 14, verse 19 says, Then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So there's this idea of running after it. The same thing in Hebrews 12, 14. And there's an interesting juxtaposition of commands here. And they're not unrelated. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And it's easy to read that and think, okay, he had this idea of peace, and then he dropped that, and then he suddenly went to another one. And, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, be holy, right? But they're the same thing in his thinking. Pursue peace with everyone. In other words, be a holy person, pure and good and clean and full of love like God is holy. And it is Difficult. It is certainly difficult. It is one for us in Christ Jesus because we read in Ephesians 2 that he bled and died to bring us together as one people. He 
Paul says, is our peace. He is what binds us. Our mutual love, our mutual experience of his salvation, our mutual gratitude, and then mutual support and love for one another that stems from what he has done for us. But it is still a difficult thing. So no surprise then in Ephesians 4, Paul says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, and in Colossians, forgiving each other, then eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But that only happens with patience, forbearance, forgiveness, kindness, humility toward one another. These are the beautiful things. This is the aroma of Lebanon. This, this is the blossoming of peoples of God's church. People that shouldn't really get along, but they do. They shouldn't really be together, but they are. And they cherish each other and care for one another and pray for one another. So, Titus 3, I came across this verse and thought, well... I came across it in my devotion, and I thought it was timely. And here's one of those passages where uh, what Paul says is tougher than anything I think I've ever said. So just let Paul speak here. But he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Titus 3. Now, now he's talking about the Jewish law, but this would apply to anything outside the You know, the gospel itself, things that he says are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, here he's speaking to someone who absolutely refuses to talk about it, absolutely refuses to repent turns their back basically on Christ himself and says, I'm going to be whatever I want to be. So it's very serious, okay, very serious. But it does show what Paul thinks about division, how serious division is. And I think on Christ's part and Paul's part, the reason is that this is so unlike the Trinity, Because they have lived in eternal joy and unity and love. And we're to reflect that love in our relationship. That's the whole point of relationship is to reflect the glorious relationship in God. But by his grace, Jesus has died to do that. He's died to do that. He bore our sins so that we would die to everything that's opposed to unity. And live in righteousness, doing all of these things Paul lays out that are necessary for us to live in unity. The power of his cross transforms us so that we no longer are treacherous toward God or one another. But we are devoted to God, devoted to one another by his grace. And that's a lifelong prospect and a continual work in any church. Well, that's the lion's share of this passage, as you can see, just from how many verses. So we'll spend a a shorter time on each of the last points as they are shorter in the the passage. We go from then God's uh, course of love to God's complaint about idols. 
And he starts here, what have I to do with idols? In other words, what relationship do I have with idols? What likeness? How would you compare me to anyone or anything? What do I have in common with an idol, right? It's that feel. Much like when he says in Deuteronomy 32, I am the one. There's no God beside me. I'm the one that kills and I make alive, I wound, I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. What do I have in common with an idol? And earlier in Hosea, in 5.13, he says, You go to the great king of Assyria, but he can't cure you. He can't heal your wound. In fact, it's almost like, who's going to heal Assyria? (laughs) You're, you're going to a terminal patient for healing. You just, to go to Assyria is to join the, the dying club. They can't heal you. You won't be healed except with me. And this shows that this love song that we've just dealt with, this, this chorus of love, is also a war song against idolatry. Because Israel wanted to be fruitful like Lebanon by worshiping the gods of Lebanon like Baal, the fertility god. Hey, look how fruitful Lebanon is. Maybe if we worship the god of Lebanon, then we could be fruitful too. And that's why Lebanon is repeated. He says, I'm the one that makes you like Lebanon. I'm the one that makes you fruitful. I'm the one. In fact, he even says, for only time in scripture, he says, I am like an evergreen cypress. The only time he compares himself to a tree. And it almost, because the forests of Lebanon are so famous, it's almost like God says, I'm the tree, you know. I'm the true tree. I'm the ultimate tree. I'm the source of everything. I'm the source of anything that Lebanon could have outwardly good. I'm the source of anything you could have outwardly good or spiritually good. I'm the only one. It's me. It's me. So, as Jeremiah says, comparing one who would trust in mankind to one who trusts in Yahweh, in, in God, he says, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind or trusts in flesh. He'll be like a little bush in the desert, a parched place, a salt land. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, he'll be like a tree planted by water. His roots go into the water. His leaf never withers. It's always there. Leaves are always green. He produces his fruit. He prospers in the presence of God. And you'd think, you know, that's enough for me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do You'd think presenting this to the whole world, you know, the two opportunities. Do you want to be a bush in the desert? you want to be a tree by the river? But the next verse is familiar. The heart, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand the treachery of our heart that we still will choose against God? We don't believe the the desert story. We don't believe the tree by the water story. We continue to be treacherous toward God if left to ourselves. But God changes our hearts. He changes us. And he shines into our heart the beauty and glory of Christ. Even as we sang earlier, 
Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Like, this is amazing. My refusal and my hardness, where did it go? I I find I admire God. I I find I love God. I'm trusting God. Through thy free, uh, dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. So God's complaint against idols is a complaint that his people would destroy themselves by these idols. It's, it's still a part of his love for them, his love song. Don't run to that which would destroy you. Come, I am the place of fruitfulness. And finally then, and this, this comes almost, it seems to come out of left field, this last verse, because suddenly you jump into Proverbs here. It's a typical proverb. And it may have been added by an editor along the way, but the Holy Spirit did this, and it's part of the canon, and it is inspired by him. But it's this last consideration of the things that have been said, not only in chapter 14, but this whole book. And it's interesting because Psalm 107, which is a kind of sister passage, at the end of Psalm 107, you have the same description of the beautiful things God's going to do for his people. And then at the end, it starts the same way verse 9 does. Whoever is wise, okay? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Be wise. Consider the steadfast love of God. Here it's consider the Lord who is upright. This means straight, true. Consider this one We say of some people, uh, of a man, you know, he's a straight up guy. He won't steer you wrong. He won't take your money. He won't betray you. He won't lie to you. He won't take advantage of you. He won't use and abuse you. He'll only think of your best interests. He'll serve you with integrity and faithfulness. He will only do you good. He's a straight up guy. And basically he's saying, this is a straight up God. You can depend on him. He will never do you wrong. And if you're discerning, if you're wise, you put yourself under the care of this God who is straight up, who is good. How much more is it revealed in the person of Christ? This is how straight up he comes to us in the person of Christ, bears our sin away. His love is unsearchable. That's how straight he is. His love knows no boundary. That's how good he is. That's how pure he is. And so I urge you, uh, as said earlier in this chapter of Hosea, what we considered last week, return. Return to this God. Ask him to take away all of your sin. Ask him to renew you and take away the treachery of your heart. Ask him so to reveal his goodness that you melt and you give yourself up to him. He will do it. He rescues his people. And as it speaks of the splendor and the fame that his people will have, this is explained even further in the New Testament. In a passage like Philippians 3, 
where it says we're waiting for a savior from heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And when he comes, he will make our humble bodies be just like his body of glory. We will participate in the glory of the man Christ. And then it says in another place, we will reign with him. In another place, we will judge angels in him. In another place, we will smash the nations in him. What? What splendor, what glory, what fame given to those who were treacherous. How, how could he love us? How could he want to do this for treacherous people? But he does. And in that day, we will be restored to be like God. We will have perfect joy in each other. You will, you will enjoy and admire every human being in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will be a joy to every human being. And then we will look like God. Our fellowship will be a perfect human reflection of the beauty of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great work in us, for us in Christ, to bear away our punishment, to renew our hearts and transform us. Oh, Lord, thank you. You come after a strong Come after a strong in the person of Christ. You come after a strong in the beauty of the good news of what God has done for sinners. Oh Lord, you come at us strong through the power of the Holy Spirit to help us see, to make us to see these beautiful things and then to be able to respond to them and trust in you. Oh Lord, you came after us. We didn't come after you. We didn't want you. We were faithless. But you are so faithful to us. You love us and have loved us from all eternity and will love us forever. Thank you. Thank you, God. We pray this for the sake and glory of Jesus. Amen.